0: Today, we're going to focus on the fruit of the Spirit. I'll begin reading in verse 16 and read through verse 23. Galatians 5.16 says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Let's say a word of prayer before we begin here. Holy Father, as I, as I look out on the congregation this morning and see so many absent, um, I'm reminded not only that some are traveling, um, and, but also some are sick. And so it's our prayer, Lord, that you would keep safe those who are traveling and bring them safely back to us. And those who are ill, we pray for their healing, Lord, that you would return them to us soon as well. Uh, For those of us who are here this morning, it is our prayer that you would fill us with your spirit and with understanding so that we might uh, understand what it is that you desire to say to us through these words today. We pray that you would convict us where we need convicting, that you would encourage us where we need encouragement, and most of us probably need both, and uh, that you would do all this for your glory as well as for our good. And we pray these things in the name of Of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You remember that uh, we began a couple of weeks ago looking at this, the need to walk in the Spirit, and with a recognition that we're in a battle, constant battle with what Paul calls the flesh. And there's a battle between the Holy Spirit working within us and the flesh, which is the remnants of the old man that are still there, is the best way to put it. That's what Paul means by the word, as we saw. And then he got into, in verses 19 through 21, um, a representative list of the various works of the flesh. What What is it that we're battling? Well, we're battling sin. And here are all the different kinds of sin that we're battling. So when he says we're battling the flesh, we're battling indwelling sin that still remains in us and still has to be rooted out. This is what the process of sanctification is all about, is the Holy Spirit transforms us. And after having done that, he, he, he doesn't want to stop there. He, he always goes to the positive, right? And he's going here to next to the fruit of the Spirit, which he contrasts with these works of the flesh. And so what we see as we look at these two things is that it's, uh, we shouldn't just battle the works of the flesh and the, and the sins that we battle on a daily basis, but that we need to replace them with something else, right? We need to replace them with the fruit of the Spirit. But we'll see that this isn't something that we believers can do for ourselves. Uh, This is something that must be done for us and through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this point is clear from the way that Paul introduces his list of these godly character traits by calling them the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, That's what he says in the beginning of verse 22, when he says, but the fruit of the spirit is, and then he goes on to list what he means. And when Paul speaks of the fruit of the spirit, I think he's making it pretty clear that it's fruit which the spirit produces in us. And this point is made even more clear when one considers the difference in the way that he speaks of these godly traits versus the way that he spoke of the sinful traits in the preceding verses. In order to see what I mean, I want to pause before we get into looking briefly at each one of these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. I want to take the time uh, to look at two obvious and important differences between the way Paul described the works of the flesh that were listed in verses 19 through 21, and the way that he refers to the fruit of the Spirit listed here in verses 22 through 23. Now, first of all, whereas Paul refers to the works of the flesh. Here he refers to the fruit of the spirit. He's using two different terms. Um, And I think I could do no better at explaining the implications of this than Timothy George has done in his commentary on this passage. He very uh, insightfully observes that, quote, Paul does not contrast the works of the flesh with the works of the spirit. The works of the flesh are the products of fallen human beings in their devising, conniving, and manufacturing in the sense of made with one's own hands, efforts at self-actualization. From the Tower of Babel to modern totalitarianism, from Aaron's golden calf to contemporary idols of money, sex, and power, the works of the flesh have littered the human landscape with misery, violence, and death. When Paul proceeds to describe the modality of a spirit-led life, however, he deliberately shifted from the language of technology to that of nature, the fruit of the spirit. Those who grow apples, oranges, or peaches know that however much they may seek to protect their orchards from bad weather or deadly insects, at the end of the day, the product yielded by a fruit tree is a gift, not the result of human ingenuity or agricultural prowess, just so, that which the Holy Spirit affects in the lives of believers, the desirable traits of Paul's second list is the result of his indwelling presence and the spiritual metamorphosis that dynamic reality brings about. I think he's onto something there when he says, why does he use these two different terms? I think it is to emphasize that what he's talking about isn't something that we produce. It's something produced in us. Um, And it's more a gift than something that we drum up in ourselves, in our own effort. That's the first difference in the way that he describes these things. There's a second difference. Whereas Paul uses the plural to refer to the works of the flesh, he uses the singular to refer to the fruit of the spirit. Now, this is one of those nouns that can be a collective noun, right? We have nouns like that, uh, that, and fruit is one of them. And I think it was probably in Greek as well. Uh, A collective noun is one that can refer to multiple things, right? Um, We can refer to an apple as fruit or a bunch of apples as fruit, right? But I think here, the singular reference to the fruit of the spirit is intended to show that these attributes are inextricably bound together. They're all part of the same fruit. In other words, they're not different kinds of fruit. It's all part of the same fruit. You really can't have one of them without having the others. You can't have any of them without having the Holy Spirit. For example, you can't really love others without also finding joy in the Lord while doing so, at least not if you're loving the way you're supposed to, or without seeking peace while doing so, or without being long-suffering, kind, good, faithful, and gentle toward them. And you'll certainly need a lot of self-control in order to consistently love in such a manner. So just that one example, the you know, love, the very first one, what's that mean without all the rest of them, right? They, they have to be taken together. And so I think that that's one of the reasons that Paul perhaps chose to speak of the works of the flesh in the plural and the singular here of the fruit of the Spirit. He intends them all to be like a package deal, And so having thus considered the way in which he has introduced the fruit of the spirit, I want to turn our attention now to a brief examination of each one of them. And this uh, will take us a few minutes, of course, but it'll be well worth our time. Uh, I've got several pages here. I think I've got nine fruits listed here. Yeah, it looks like nine. Uh, Nine different attributes of the fruit of the spirit. But... We shouldn't assume that this list is intended to be exhaustive. We need to say that at the outset, any more than the previous list of the works of the flesh was intended to be exhaustive. Paul made that clear when he said, and like, at the end, right? Um, and we'll, we'll see that more on that later. But like that list, this one is a representative sample, one in which uh, Paul is more concerned with naming these godly attributes rather than explaining them. He doesn't say love, and by that I mean, self-control, and by that I mean, and give us explanations. He just lists them out. And he expects that believers will contemplate what they are, and that they'll do so in conjunction with the rest of the teaching that they have in Scripture, right? And so that's what we're going to try to do as as we move along here. Um, So let's start with the first one, love. Love. Now, love may be described, I think, um, biblically as a selfless, self-sacrificing affection for others. I think that that's the way you would have to define it biblically. I think you you don't want to get rid of the idea of affection in there. And that's why I say uh, I think it's a selfless, self-sacrificing affection for others. Now, there was a trend, at least when I was coming up in Bible college, to say that love is you know, the God kind of love, agape love, isn't really a feeling; it's a decision. And they were what they were trying to do was go against this idea that love is nothing but feelings, and that if you don't feel it, you don't have to do it, right? Uh, and so they they were trying to counter that by saying love is an act of the will. Well, that's that's true, um, but I don't think any of us would feel loved if uh, if you if your husband, ladies, or your wife. Uh, gentlemen, or your parents' children, <laughs> or uh, were to say to you, you know, I don't feel any love for you at all, but I guess I'm loving you anyway because I'm deciding to do, you know, like loving things for you. Would you feel loved? You'd feel tolerated and put up with, but not loved. And that's why I think affection has to be part of it. Now, if you're struggling to feel love for, for someone, especially, say, an enemy whom we're told to love in the Bible, um, then you start with a decision. I'm going to decide I'm going to love that person, and I'm going to then trust God to give me the feelings that should go with that. right? You've got to start somewhere, and that's a good place to start is decide I'm going to love that person like I'm supposed to, and I'm going to learn how to do it, and I'm going to trust God to help me to do it, right? And then I'm going to trust my feelings will match up. Uh, that the Holy Spirit will work in me as I prayerfully ask him to what needs to happen. But I think that's an important aspect of the definition myself. And so that's why I put it in there. And I think biblically we'd have to say that as well. But I think God is the best example of all of these traits. He's, he's the best example in the Bible of love. Um, there's the verse almost everybody knows, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. There's the idea of sacrificing, self-sacrificing love, right? The Romans 5, 8 is another example, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still, still sinners, Christ died for us. There's this idea of sacrifice again. So, the kind of love that Paul has in mind, I think, is the kind of love that reflects our family resemblance with our heavenly Father, and I think that it's a, it should be defined as selfless, self-sacrificing affection for others. I think that's the idea here. That's the fruit of the spirit. The next thing he lists is joy. I think joy is, is a, a kind of feeling perhaps of inner happiness in the Lord that does not depend upon circumstances. I think that's probably the best way to think of joy biblically. Um, a feeling of inner happiness in the Lord that does not depend upon circumstances. And I think this is why the Christian may rejoice even in the midst of great trials as Peter says in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 6. That's 1 Peter 1. I'll be reading verse 6 through 9. He says this, In this you greatly rejoice. And that word there describes uh, supreme joy, greatly rejoicing, exceedingly rejoicing. He says, In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. Now notice what he's talking about here is joy in the midst of grief. So apparently, Peter thinks, and Paul thinks too, if you look at the passages that he has on this subject, uh, that joy and sorrow can go together. They're not... Sim- simpletons that have simplistic ideas of human beings and they know that we can feel more than one thing at a time we're, we're capable of complex emotions so you can have joy in the midst of sorrow you can have joy in the midst of, of grief and anyone who's lost a loved one in the Lord knows that right? you, you, you sorrow Paul says to the Thessalonians but not as those who have no hope because so at the one and the same time, you have joy in your heart for that believer who's going to be with the Lord, but you have sorrow too. Well, this is the way Peter expects that believers will be in the midst of any trial. When he says, in this you greatly rejoice, for now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, here's why we're greatly rejoicing now that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The reason, though we grieve in our trials, we still have joy in the midst of them, is we know the end. We know what they're for. We know what will be produced as a result. And that injects joy in the midst of the sorrow. Then he says, having mentioned the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, he, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What brings us joy in the midst of trials? What can bring us joy in spite of our circumstances? How does this fruit of the spirit get exhibited in our lives? Well, even in the midst of trials, we know that they're working out for God's glory and for our salvation. That they're strengthening, they're testing our faith, and they're showing our faith to be genuine and not fake as we continue to trust God through these difficult times. And every time we see that result of the work of the Spirit in our hearts keeping us in the midst of these trials... We have joined our hearts because, hey, I'm the real thing. (laughs) I can see the Spirit working in me. I can see what he's doing in my life as a result of these trials. And I know the end. I know that as he is giving me faith now, he'll give me faith to the end. I know my salvation is sure. That's the kind of thing that Peter's talking about. It gives me joy when I think about that, even though I'm crying and hurting. That is something that comes from the Holy Spirit. That kind of joy. When Paul mentions joy as the fruit of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't mean what everybody else has. When everything's going great, I feel wonderful. No, he means the kind of joy that you have through anything that can be available to you. Such joy is a lasting joy because it is the joy of the Lord It's his joy that he shares with us as Jesus promised. For example, in John 15, beginning in verse 8. I'll be reading John 15, verse 8 through 11. He says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so that you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. That my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. How can we have fullness of joy? It's the joy of the Lord being given to us, that's how. That's what Jesus is saying. And no wonder Paul calls it fruit of the Holy Spirit. The next thing on the list, the third thing is peace. Now peace may refer either to peace with God or peace from God, right? That's the way that you usually see it, one of those two ways in the New Testament. Here I think that Paul has peace from God in mind, a peace that stems from our own reconciliation with God and that affects our relationships with others. such peace, uh, peace, excuse me, refers to a disposition characterized by inner rest and harmony, as, as one lexicon puts it. It's, uh, it entails freedom from anxiety. As with joy, such peace does not depend upon circumstances because it comes from God himself. As Paul indicated in his epistle to the Philippians, When he said this in Philippians 4, 6 through 7, Philippians 4, 6 through 7, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. because this kind of peace is a fruit of the spirit and it has to come from God Paul says we got to pray for it (laughs) if if we're struggling with anxiety and we're trying to have peace Paul says knowing that peace is a fruit of the Holy Spirit he tells us where we got to go to get it we got to pray and we got to pray with Thanksgiving and that means the things that make us anxious we don't usually thank God for those things but we should that's the idea that Paul has here. Everything that's causing you anxiety and you're praying about, you need to pray with thanksgiving when you do that. And God will give you peace. And he, he calls it the peace which surpasses all understanding. And that's why I often say it's, uh, it's something you really have to experience to know. You, you can try to explain it to other people, but it surpasses understanding. I mean, God has to give it to you for you to know it. And many of us have known it. I have known it many times in my life. I knew it when my wife, I thought, might die of cancer. I wrote about it in a blog article called, because I write blog articles that are so, uh, my titles are always so, uh, what do you call imaginative. I think it's called, How the Lord Shepherded Me Through My Wife's Battle with Cancer. <laughs> Very, you know exactly what the, but I wrote about how God gave me peace during that time. He gave my wife peace. He's given her peace now and he's given me peace even though I've got cancer, stage three cancer right now. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? That you've known Peace. Maybe it's not been consistent. Maybe it's not been constant. Maybe there's been moments where you feel anxiety more than you feel peace because we're in a battle with the flesh, remember. (laughs) It's always going to be a battle to have this peace. Paul's already told us that, right? But we can have it. Many of us have testimony, can give testimony to that. And I can't explain it. I just know it's real. And I know if I can have it, you can have it too. All of us can. That's what Scripture says. So let's trust God for it, eh? The next thing you list is long suffering. Now, the the Greek word translated long suffering here in the New King James Version may also be translated as patience, as in some versions. Uh, it refers to forbearance with others, even under provocation, as Thomas Constable puts it in his expository notes. Forbearance with others, even under provocation. God demonstrates such patience toward us in spite of our sins against him, for example. Uh, Paul wrote about this in Romans 2, verse 4, Romans 2, verse 4, when he says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering?" There's the same word. Not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. That's the kind of long-suffering that Paul's talking about. God's long-suffering with us even though we're sinners. (laughs) And we should be long-suffering with others around us. Whether they're believers or they're unbelievers, we should be long-suffering, patient, patient, now there's there's a, a time that we see in the scriptures where patience isn't called for and it's time to do something. I mean Jesus when he made a whip and drove the money changer out of the temples uh, out of the temple precincts, remember, uh, he wasn't showing patience at that point, right? The time for patience had come to an end. Well, there's a time for that. Every parent knows that when they've had to discipline their child, right? But but because you do that as a patient person, you don't do it in a fit of rage, right? But instead with self-control and with love because these fruit, the fruit of the spirit, they go together, as I've said. Kindness is the fifth thing listed here, kindness. This seems to refer to a gracious attitude toward others, um, One uh, lexicon puts it this way, it's a quality of being helpful or beneficial toward others. Once again, God himself is our example, as when Paul says in his epistle to the Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7, Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 7, Paul says this, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There God is the model of kindness. How is his kindness seen to us. Well, he's given us all the blessings of salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's kindness. That's how we're supposed to be toward other people, toward one another. We're supposed to have that same attitude, kindness. We want blessings for those around us, just like God wants blessings for us. Goodness is the next thing, the sixth thing in the list. similar to kindness, isn't it? Um, uh, the Greek word here when used as a quality of moral excellence refers to like being good, uh, but it can also be used as a quality of a relationship with others as it seems to be used here, in which case it refers more to a willingness to give or share perhaps with others, uh, to demonstrate goodness to others. Uh, what's the way you usually do that? You you do good things for them, right? And often that involves sharing, giving, that sort of thing. And Once again, this reflects an attribute of God whose goodness is expressed in his desire for our future glorification, as Paul said to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read here from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So God's goodness and his grace go together here, right? at bringing about our future glorification. That's what the passage is pointing to when we're glorified with Jesus. That fulfills all the good pleasure of his goodness toward us. And so we're supposed to demonstrate goodness toward others as well. That means we're going to want, once again, what's best for them. And we're going to want to do what we can to bring that about by the grace of God. In that way, we'll be like our Heavenly Father. So what I'm trying to show you is really all the fruit of the Spirit is, is the way we're supposed to resemble our Heavenly Father as his children. (laughs) We're supposed to be like him. And it's through the power of the Spirit that we can be like him. And then people will see our good deeds, Jesus says, and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's That's the ultimate goal. The next thing on the list, the seventh thing, is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Now, the Greek word here may for either to faith, like the faith we have in God, the trust we place in Christ for salvation, or to faithfulness. Um, now, given the way that is listed here with other attributes such as goodness and, and gentleness, I think Paul has faithfulness in mind, and I think that's translated correctly in the New King James that way. Um, although, we would also certainly consider faith to be a fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? Because faith is a gift of God. It's not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. Faithfulness refers to the reliability or trustworthiness of a person. Reliability or trustworthiness. A Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature uh, defines the term in this regard as, quote, the state of being someone in whom confidence can be placed. Faithfulness, reliability, fidelity, commitment, are words that they would suggest to translate it. Elsewhere, Paul encourages the Corinthian believers by reminding them of the faithfulness of God toward them. So once again, God is our our primary example for faithfulness. Here's a couple examples from 1 Corinthians. The first one comes from First Corinthians chapter one, verses four through nine. 1 Corinthians one verses four through nine. Paul says this, "I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation." of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. How is it that we can be sure that we'll be confirmed to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Elsewhere he calls that being glorified. How can we be sure of that? Because God is faithful. He's trustworthy. He's reliable. You can count on him to do what he says. And we're supposed to be like that. We're supposed to be like that. Faithful, trustworthy, reliable like that. People should be able to count on our love toward them just as we're able to count on God's love toward us, in other words. People like it when they know that. Uh, I've got a friend who's been going through a lot. He's been attacked a lot lately for some stuff that he's written. One of the first things I said to him is, Brother, just know this. You can always count on me to give you the benefit of the doubt and to think the best of you. Always. What was I trying to tell him? You can count on me to be a faithful friend. I won't turn on you like other people have. And I, I'm trying by the grace of God to be that kind of person toward everyone, right? That's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's the way we're supposed to be. And we fail at it. We don't always do it as we should. That's what we should long to be like. We should all want to be the kind of person that everyone around us counts on to love them no matter what. They should be able to come into Emmanuel and say, this is a group of people. No matter what else is going on in my life, I can count on them to love me. I can count on them to to want to do what's best for me, even if it's hard sometimes. I can count on them for that. That's the kind of people we should be if we're like our Heavenly Father. That's the fruit of the Spirit. He says again in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, What a promise this is of God's faithfulness. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. We can count on him for that. Sad thing is, when we get into temptations, we don't count on him for that. We should very often, but we can. We may not be faithful like we should be, but he's always faithful. We may not always keep our promises, but he always does. And we're, we're called to be like him in that regard. Got a battle of flesh to do that, for sure. Eighth, gentleness. Gentleness. Now, the Greek word translated gentleness in most modern translations may also be translated as meekness, as it is in the King James Version, the analytical lexicon of the, to the Greek New Testament defines it as a quality of gentle friendliness or meekness, which it says is strength that accommodates to another's weakness. Meekness is strength that accommodates to another's weakness. Jesus, who was God incarnate, demonstrated this attribute In his gentle or meek calling to his disciples, he said in Matthew 11, verses 28, 29, again it's Matthew 11, verses 28, 29, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle or meek, it could be translated, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So here we see Jesus as the ultimate example of strength that accommodates to another's weakness. For here we have one who is God himself accommodating himself to our weaknesses. That's what the incarnation was all about. So some, sometimes people confuse meekness with weakness. And that's far from the truth. I think it's much better to see it as in the biblical sense that, and I think this, the analytical lexicon of the Greek New Testament was right, a strength that accommodates to another's weakness. That's what meekness is. It's not, uh, you're doing this because you're so weak you can't do anything else. You have the strength to do anything, (laughs) to do something else, but you choose not to. That's weakness. That's uh, meekness, rather, or gentleness. Um, The ninth one on the list, the final one, is self-control. And that means exactly what it says, uh, that one has control of himself or herself. Um, I think Paul refers to this attribute of God in his second epistle to Timothy, when he says in 2 Timothy 1.7, and here I'm, I'm reading from the New English translation because it capitalizes the word spirit here, I think appropriately. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, for God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I think he's referring to the Holy Spirit there. The Holy Spirit is not a spirit of fear. If we're filled with fear, it's not the Holy Spirit producing it, Paul's saying. What would the Holy Spirit produce in us? Power and love and self-control. It's a fruit of the Spirit, as he says in Galatians. So I think it's probably best to take it that way, but it's also possible that he's referring to the human spirit. However, even if this is the case, and Paul doesn't have the Holy Spirit specifically in mind, I think we can all agree that self-control is indeed an attribute of God, especially since it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not going to give us something he doesn't have, (laughs) right? Uh, It's listed in our text along with other attributes of God, which are called the fruit of the Spirit. So I think it's safe to say that self-control is an attribute of God. And this is another way that we're supposed to be like him. And I've tried to drive home giving all these examples of how the the Spirit has been demonstrated by God himself whether God the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit um, that again we become more like him as we exhibit these things, that's the point we're, we're, the goal is that we be conformed to the image of his Son, that we become formed to Christ who is the representation of, of God the Father, right, we're supposed to be like him That's what the fruit of the Spirit is all about. And as we grow in these graces then, we're seeing evidence of the Spirit's transforming work in us, which is what Paul was talking about when he wrote in his second epistle to the Corinthians and said this in 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verses 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same glory or image rather from glory to glory just as by the spirit of the Lord or are being transformed into the image of his son from glory to glory through the work of the spirit in our lives and the fruit of the spirit is the evidence of that I'm saying. It's the evidence of the power of the spirit at work in us. And it's a sure sign that we're genuine believers. It's, it's evidence of genuine faith and repentance, as John the Baptist would say. Uh, uh, when we exhibit the fruit of the Holy Spirit, I think, uh, Holy Spirit, I think John the Baptist would say, we're bearing fruits worthy of repentance, as he would have called it in Matthew 3, 8. So we see how important the fruit of the Spirit is, I think for the assurance of our salvation too. Um, It's as we see ourselves being transformed that we can see the work of the Spirit in us that we realize that something's happening in us that could only be from him. In addition, when we're living like this under the Spirit's control, we'll not have to worry that we might break the law of God. As Paul goes on to point out at the end of verse 23, Against such, he says, there is no law. Against such, there is no law, he says. You know, I think there are two points to consider briefly about that statement to understand, I think, what he means by it. First, when Paul says that it, against such, there is no law. Against such, there is no law. The, that's a plural word in the Greek, and it can be translated as against such things i.e. the things he's just listed. As fruit of the spirit, there is no law. That's the way it's translated in the ESV and the NASB. And it helps us to see that the language echoes, earlier language, from verse 21, when he spoke of the works of the flesh. There he spoke of things like envy, murders, drunkenness, revel- revelries, and the like, literally, all things like these or and things like these, of which Paul says, I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's plenty of laws against such things as those, but such things as the fruit of the Spirit, there's no law against any of those. This confirms the point that Paul does not intend also for us to see this list of the fruit of the Spirit as an exhaustive one. When he says, against such things, that means these things and others like them is the implication, right? He doesn't want to see this as an exhaustive list any more than the other one. Paul could have included, for example, such things as courage, that would be a fruit of the Spirit. Think of Joshua and all the times, the angel of the Lord said, be strong and courageous, right? Honesty, surely that would be a fruit of the spirit. Sincerity, called upon to be sincere in the New Testament. Thankfulness, thankfulness to God, that would be a fruit of the spirit. A godly sorrow for sin, that would be a fruit of the spirit. Repentance, that's not on the list. Surely that's a fruit of the spirit. Mercy, that's not specifically there. Or forgiveness, being forgiving toward other people. Surely that would be a fruit of the spirit. These would be all things, the kinds of things that the spirit produces in us. And so again, this fruit of the spirit list isn't meant to be exhaustive. It's a representative list. And I think we're invited to look throughout the rest of the New Testament and look at the kinds of things the Holy Spirit produces in people, and we can add to this list, right, of things that we would call fruit of the Spirit. The second thing to consider here is that when Paul says uh, that there is no law against the fruit of the Spirit, he's addressing a significant matter in the epistle which is uh, directed at all those people who are fixated on keeping the law. Remember, in Galatia, there were these called Judaizers that came through. They were heretics that said you had to be circumcised to be saved. You had to really become a Jew first before you could be saved. And Paul said, you're you're making a work, right, necessary for salvation and you're undoing salvation by grace in the process. And when you add anything to faith, Paul says, you're you're, you're undermining the gospel. And so I think these people are coming along and and, uh, trying to get the Galatians to believe this lie are really focused on the law and keeping the law. And Paul's saying if you're so concerned about keeping the law, then you can be sure the one way you'll never break the law is if you're being led by the Spirit and exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. Never break the law doing that. (laughs) So, Remember, he had said earlier in the epistle, having begun in the spirit, are you can continue on in the flesh? This is another argument for, you want to continue in the spirit. That's the only way you can be sure that you'll live out the laws you should be. Essentially, that's the point of saying this, or at least one of them. I think John Stott may also be on the right track when he writes, quote, no wonder, Paul adds again, against such there is no law, for the function of the law is to curb, to restrain, to deter, to deter, and no deterrent is needed here. <laughs> who wants to deter love and self-control and patience and kindness and joy? <laughs> so forth. But remember also that a person who possesses the fruit of the Spirit does actually fulfill the law. Early in the passage in verses 13 and 14, Paul said, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty, only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, Which is a fruit of the Spirit. Serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Not only will you not be breaking the law, you'll be fulfilling it. All you people concerned about the law out there, Paul would be saying. But to love others in this way, we can't do it on our own. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And remember, as I pointed out earlier, you really can't have any one of these attributes without having the others. You can't really love others without also finding joy in the Lord in doing so, or seeking peace while doing so, or being long-suffering, kind, good, faithful, gentle toward others, for example. And you'll most definitely need self-control in order to consistently love others this way. So I'd like to conclude by encouraging each one of us to ask himself or herself this simple question, Do I exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in my life? I don't mean perfectly. I mean at all. Can you look at your life and say, you know, I'm more loving than I was before. I am more patient than I used to be. I do have more self-control. Maybe not in every area of my life yet, but I can see it clearly, at least in some areas of my life, that I didn't see it before. For some of us, that means I quit smoking finally. (laughs) You know, I finally had the self-control to quit doing that, right? It starts with things like that, perhaps. Do I find myself wanting to do good for others? Am am I trying to be a faithful person? I didn't used to be a faithful, trustworthy person, but now I'm trying to be. Well, that's the work of the Spirit in your life. You should thank God for it. You should thank God for it every day. For, for those of us who find it much easier to spot the works in the flesh in us than we, than we find it to spot the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> because when we, we have a temperament that is like that, maybe we grew up like that, you know. I've always been this way. I'm much better at seeing what's wrong with me than seeing what's right with me. Anybody that knows me well knows that's true. And part of growing in the Christian faith is learning to stop that. It's learning to see the good things God is doing in me and giving him the glory for it like I'm supposed to. It's a wicked thing for God to be doing something good in you and you not to give him the glory for it. It's not wicked that he's doing it. It's wicked that you don't acknowledge it and give him the glory for it when he does it. It's a terrible thing. Not to say thank you, God, for doing this work in me. And what? Here's what we find when we start to do that. When we start to thank Him, as Paul said, we will relieve our anxiety. When we start to do that, and we pray prayers of thanks, even in difficult circumstances that cause anxiety and so forth. But what will begin to happen is we'll begin to, a whole mentality toward ourselves and others will start to change. We'll become much more positive people. You know what? People enjoy being around us a whole lot more. We'll be a lot more encouraging. Because we'll not just be looking to encourage ourselves through seeing the good things that God's doing in us. We'll be looking for it in other people too. And encouraging it whenever we see it. Because we've suddenly become interested in God getting the glory for all the good that he's doing everywhere at all times. Got to learn to be better at spotting the fruit of the Spirit than we are. Many of us. And giving God the glory for it like we should. Thanking Him from the depths of our being that He's doing in and through us something we could never do on our own. And we know He couldn't do it on our own, which is why we're so good at seeing the bad things about ourselves. It's not bad that you see what's wrong with you, it's bad when you are so focused on what's wrong with you, you can't see what's right, you can't see what God's doing. If that's happening to you, you're losing the battle to the devil. Don't let that happen. Don't let the flesh blind you to what God is doing. Please. Let's pray. Holy Father, I try to give a word of encouragement to my brothers and sisters as one who has struggled with this battle of the flesh for many years uh, and who has learned that uh, sometimes I lose because my whole focus is wrong. And I'm not putting the emphasis where it needs to be on you and your faithfulness, on your... trustworthiness to keep your promises on the work of your spirit in me and the people around me. Help us, Lord, to be the kind of people that are attuned because we have your word and we understand these things to seek out the good that we see you doing in ourselves and in others and give you all the praise you so richly deserve for it. And in the process, Lord, Fill us with more and more of the fruit of the Spirit, I pray. If there are here those here today who have, who have been like me in this battle and have struggled to see good things in themselves, I pray, Lord, that they would believe it when other believers around them tell them they see good things instead of disbelieve it. <laughs> that they would trust that you're speaking to them to encourage them. I pray, Lord, that there are people who struggle with a weak conscience and that constantly berates them and knocks them down, that they can have the eyes to see what the Spirit's really doing in them and get the joy that comes with that. Be relieved of their struggle and their burden, I pray. And perhaps there's someone here this morning that says, well, you know, I've, I've been listening to these messages and I think I'm fake. I think I'm not a true believer. Well, then I pray that today would be the day that he or she would surrender to you and trust you in your grace save them. We ask all these things for your glory in the end, Lord, and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.